From WDBM, East Lansing. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. Our weekly news and storytelling program. Made by and for the students of Michigan State University. You are listening to The The Undercurrent. From WDVM East Lansing, this is The Undercurrent, and I'm your host, Cole Tunningly. This week, we're doing something a little bit different. We're presenting the pilot episode of a brand new podcast created by Nina Rao. It's called Loose Ends. It's a talk show that tries to define America from an international student's perspective. For her first episode, Nina gathered a diverse panel of MSU students to answer the question, what does it mean to be an American? And that's what you'll hear right now on this sneak peek of Impact 89FM's newest podcast, Loose Ends. Here it is. I came to America three years ago, on August 2014. I traveled 38 hours by air from my home country, Indonesia. I've never been here, so it was my first time. I came here to pursue my bachelor's degree and, you know, chase the quote-unquote American dream. And I've never seen white people, ever. I didn't grow up with them. My only exposure of them were... American movies and TV shows, and boy were they different in real life. After a few months here, I had an identity crisis. I tried to assimilate, tried to be quote-unquote one of them, but I couldn't. And looking back, it made sense because I wasn't born and raised here. And because I was suddenly surrounded by Americans, especially white Americans, I decided that I wanted to be white. I know, it sounds so ridiculous, but I wasn't fitting in and Back home, me and my family only saw white Americans as heroes and pioneers and the epitome of beauty through media. So, obviously, I wanted to be that. That didn't really work out very well. Being dark-skinned and having jet black hair did not help. So, I tried to be black. I wanted to assimilate to another American group because I wanted to fit in so badly. That failed miserably. Finding who I was in a space where I couldn't fit in, it was scary. I was alone, a foreigner with no home. That's why I created this podcast. I chose to study here because growing up, I believed in the American dream. The idea that this nation is the land of dreams where if you put in the work, you'll get what you want. But the more I learn, the more those lines are getting blurred. And with the results of the election last year, it confused me more. Suddenly there are different, narrow meanings of what Americans should be. So I wanted to find out what my peers around me thought of it. I was tired of listening to politicians and officials with their own narratives. I wanted to know what people around me thought of me as an immigrant from a predominantly Muslim country. I ended up bringing in a panel. We were connected through my ex-boss who heads the intercultural aid program here. All three of them are intercultural aides who help students in residence halls transition into the college life, in short. I chose them because they came from strikingly different backgrounds. And during this time, the Washington Post released an interesting study about Americans. It found that 92% of Americans believe speaking English is very important to live in this country. So what did my panel think of that? I think that... That's Josh Knoll, a senior at MSU. He identifies as a white male from Michigan. So there's there's two concepts. There's like de facto, which means um, what just happens, and de jure, which means it's actually a rule. 
And these terms exist within the U.S. law and government systems. There is no de jure rule saying that people have to speak English. Um, but unfortunately, like that's that's just the makeup of a country, of this country. Just like in Mexico, you would speak Spanish uh, just due, due to the colonization, due to the language that's been impressed upon the people. So I would say to get by, yeah, you have to. Not that you should have to, but that's the way it is. I agree with Josh in the fact that... That's Najma Muhammad speaking. She's a sophomore studying urban and regional planning here. She's a black Muslim woman who wears the hijab. To get by, you do have to speak English, but that should not have to be the way um, that things work. And society has made it in America, that is, that that is the norm. You know, prior to colonization and all of that, Native Americans didn't speak English. They had their own language. And then, you know, mass genocide. By mass genocide, she means the 16th century massacre of indigenous folks in North America. This was when European powers conquered majority of the world and colonized nations. The expansion led to some bloody massacres. And then slavery. And um, the enslaved Africans that were brought over here didn't speak English. And so essentially the backbone of this country was not English. But yet, you know, the people who built the country up and the people who were here prior to the colonizers, they didn't even speak English. So those who created, quote unquote, those who have the power in the country determine the language. And so that language just happens to be English. Yeah, so that's sort of like the dominant narrative in this country, right? And that makes me think that because a lot of people think that way, there's a part of the American population that's ignored. Around 32% of them, actually. This past summer, the Center for Immigration Studies reported 67% of immigrants who became citizens this year cannot speak English or speak it poorly. So I asked Shrey Tadipali, the son of Indian immigrants, on his feelings about this. I think uh, speaking English is a sign of, of especially even just f- different levels of English, I think is a sign of education, and which is attributes to status or, or economic status. But I don't, I don't know if it is essential for someone to speak English to live in this country. I think there are pockets of com- like small communities where there are high immigrant populations, uh, especially in urban areas where there do exist to be like exist as communities where people their English skills are not very good and they're able to exist in that community because it's a predominant ethnic group just in that area. And I think that that is. I, th- I find that to be very American, that so many people, like, you can have these pockets of communities in urban areas, an area like Jackson Heights and Queens. Which is predominantly Hispanic and South Asian in population. Or in Detroit, uh, the Hamtramck, which is a high Arab population. And so s- communities like that exist, and I think that's very, it defines what it means to be American. And so while English, I think, does symbolize even immigrants who are educated or, like, people who are education level throughout, throughout the country, I don't think it's essential to have the knowledge of English to live in this country. Listening to these perspectives made me think, how did their background affect their definition of being American? My parents uh, immigrated from India um, as grad students in the late 80s. Okay, and did they speak English? Yeah, yeah. so uh, they both spoke English. My mom actually uh, grew up partially in the United States and moved back to India, but uh, my dad came here the first time as a grad student. So do they speak English at your home, or do you guys speak in your native tongue? Uh, We speak both. Uh, My parents speak Telugu. Telugu is one of the many languages spoken in the southern region of India. 
both my sister and I can speak and understand uh, the language, but English is predominantly spoken in the house. The similarity between you, Shrey, and Najma is that you guys sort of are hybrids. FYI, by hybrid, I mean holding multiple layers of identity. With that, how did that sort of affect your American identity? How did that sort of shape how you define yourself as American? As a Muslim and um, as a practicing Muslim who wears the traditional headscarf, the hijab, or shayla, it's often assumed from, you know, physical appearance that I'm not American. <laughs> and so oftentimes they'll get the, where are you from? Detroit. No, where are you really from? Detroit, guys, I promise. And so um, they assume that I know Arabic. So I'll have some people walk up to me and try to start a conversation in Arabic or try to start a conversation in like Swahili or other African languages. And I have to tell them like, um, I don't understand you 100% or I can't respond to you the way that you would like for me to respond. Like I might understand you, but I don't know how to communicate back to you in the same language. And so, like I said, the extent of my Arabic is for prayer and for praise. Um, And so essentially that affects my identity because first off, no one ever believes me when I tell them I'm from Detroit. Um, How come? Because I I think it's just the Muslim thing. Like if I was just a black girl who just walked around without the hijab on, they'd be like, oh, you're from Detroit, got you. And sometimes not even that because I have Africans come to me and they're like, you have to be Nigerian. And, you know, because some Africans will come to America and they'll assimilate into the culture and they won't want to claim that they're from Africa for a lot of reasons. Um, Sometimes you have Africans who don't feel African enough when they're home and don't feel American enough when they're here. And so they'll assimilate into the culture. So I have some Africans who will get mad at me because they think I'm lying. And I'm like, I promise. I'm not. (laughs) If I did know, I'd wear it proudly, but currently I don't. Um, And my father looks like he could be from Senegal. So um, that causes kind of some confusion occasionally. And Shrey can relate. But I, I, I'm grateful for it because I think it has it has given me like a, a higher cultural knowledge then and been different lens to look at the world through. Do you guys think you're sort of like challenging the dominant narrative of like speaking English, thinking like dominant narrative of having to speak English? Do you guys feel proud? Do you feel OK? Do you feel more confused? How do you feel? It doesn't make a lot of sense for, to me for English to be a dominant language and it's not a dominant language at all. And when you put in context the rest of the whole entire world. Um, And so we should go the extra mile to strive to learn about other people's cultures as much as they, whether it's by force or not, a lot of people go the extra mile to learn English. They'll go to English um, as second language schools and all of these things, and they'll learn the language and they'll come to the society so that they can be able to navigate the society. But it's almost like as Americans, you go into these other countries and expect to be catered to. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I only know English, so I'm just going to go speak English yeah, and they're going to yeah. know that I'm American and help me out eventually. No, that's not how it works. You should try <laughs> to get knowledge from these other right. places. It makes me not want to fit that narrative of, oh, I only know English. Like that's To me, that's not cool. Cool is being able to be engaged in different mm-hmm. societies and have that diversity of knowledge and culture, as Dre was saying. What I'm hearing from you guys is that English really comes from, um, not from you, but really from colonization and ingraining that in these countries like India, like Kenya or like Nigeria and sort of putting that pedestal that English is the best. 
And this is when I turn to Josh. I'm interested in what your definition is of being American. And did that change coming to college, especially after listening to stories like Najma's and Shrey's? How did that change? Or did it change? Uh, yeah, so I came from a predominantly white area um, and also quite poor. And yeah, so it, it was 94% white, um, 44% food stamp eligible. So and I had one friend of color. He was a Filipino. But I really didn't get much exposure to pretty much anything else until I got a little bit older. I went to uh, conferences or I got a job in, more in the city area in Battle Creek. And I really started to meet people from just totally different backgrounds. And I think that's really when I sort of coalesced that there's something much greater to being American than just, I don't know, like being from my community. And people that didn't have English as a first language. And so obviously coming to college where that's even more diverse, yeah. um, I think I learned a lot more about what it means to be an American. And I, th I think it's an ever-evolving thing for me. Mm. And I, I question it a lot, you know, like, where am I in this? Mm. Or like, is it just First Nations people? Mm. Or is it is it anyone that lives here? Josh's grandfather immigrated from Germany when he was young. He couldn't really speak English, and that led to him failing most of primary school. He felt ashamed of this and decided to not pass down his native tongue onto his family because of that shame. Josh, on the other hand, feels the opposite. Well, I, I kind of felt ashamed that I didn't know another language. You know, like um, I, I met a lot of very, very, very impressive people that yeah. spoke at least two. Um, and I always like wanted to strive to be like I was kind of competitive in, in high school, like trying to get really good grades and such. But uh, that was one area that I, was, I had no progress in whatsoever. My, so my sister is a Spanish major. She's pretty much fluent in Spanish. And I think that her drive to learn another language was similar to my interest in other cultures in that I don't really have like a a unique culture that I felt very strongly towards. That interest drove him to participate in diverse spaces, and it was a factor in his decision to become an intercultural aide here. I wondered whether he felt like a minority within the multicultural spaces he's often in. Most of these spaces are filled with students of color with varying sexes and abilities, whereas Josh, I would say, is a white, quote-unquote, woke dude who I normally don't encounter. So does he feel like a minority? In that circle, sure. But um, I think that the people that I hang out with here, we're, our commonality isn't that we're like all minorities, because that's obviously not true. It's we have a mindset where we want that they, they care about your lived experiences, but they care about who you are and what you want mm -hmm. to happen. And that I think that's what that's what I enjoy. Like, I don't really, you know, mind that they're diverse and I don't. I didn't like intentionally seek that necessarily either. It's just it's just that that that's a group of people that have a common belief and maybe that's what makes, you know, an identity, but it doesn't it didn't really change. Like I think that's what I like about it because like when I was when I worked in high school, I worked in the city, like at the public library and there were a lot of people of color and like that was fine with me. Our common goal was like working a library, you know? So I think that it enriches my experience, but I like the fact that we all have a common goal. I asked Josh about what his friends and family think about that and whether he's breaking the common narrative of cis white men being quote-unquote entitled and are all quote-unquote frat boys who love to party. Yeah, no, I, I think that people would see this as strange or like, what are you doing? I don't know. And if I could speak to your idea of like the frat boy, like, yeah, uh, yeah being cis and white, I think that's a common narrative for white people that come from at least a little bit of money. 
because that, I mean, it costs money to go to France and, and live in them. And I think it really also depends on your income as well, because a lot of people think of like Hicks and Hillbillies as like the, like the worst defenders of racial inequality, but they're not the ones that set up the cities or intentionally, you know, had power over society. They're also pawns in a much larger issue, I would say. And so like racism is certainly ingrained in a lot of rural communities. That's a given. Uh, I've seen it firsthand. But they're not the ones that can exercise power the same way as wealthy white Americans. And whether they live in the suburbs or, rur- or urban areas, I think that's really where you get this sort of mindset of the fratty, sexist, racist, whatever else you can be. Whereas for Shri and Najma, high school was different than Josh's experience. Uh, high school, I went to a magnet school. It was still a public school. What's a magnet school? Um, it was a, it was an IB school, so it was like it wasn't the stereotypical public school, but it. Oh, still... I took IB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so yeah. Was... IB stands for International Baccalaureate. Long story short, it's like the AP, but way harder. Yeah, it was it was very diverse. It was like it was like overly diverse in a sense. Like there were there were not many Caucasian students. The students that were Caucasian were of were European immigrant parents, so like they weren't like. The traditional American that we we would think of, there were a high number of Indian and Chinese immigrant students. Yeah, so there were like a lot of third culture kids. Yeah, or... yeah, a lot of them. All right, time for a crash course on what third culture kids, aka TCK, means. The term TCK was coined by U.S. sociologist Ruth Hill Uceam in the 1950s. This was for children who spend their formative years in places that are not their parents' homeland. And according to the BBC, globalization has made TCKs more common. Were there like a lot of interracial couples happening? A pattern of like diversity mingling? I think there, to an extent, yeah. But I think people also like even third, like if you create, have this create this third culture, you also look for people of, of the third culture. I think even on campus, you see you still see groups that form around cultural identities. Uh, but yeah, I think there was a, an extent of interracial mingling, I guess, too. So, listening to Shrey, I'm curious as to how high school was for you, Najma. Were there a lot of um, interracial mingling? No. <laughs> um, I went to De- um, a Detroit public school for high school, which was actually my first public school. And it was predominantly black. It was um, it was considered to be one of the best high schools in Detroit, but Detroit education system is pretty interesting, so... It's not really saying too much. Um, a lot of work to do there, but it was predominantly black. I had about maybe five white people who attended school with me my four years there throughout. So like the senior class when I was a freshman had one or two and my senior class by the time I graduated, two, two white girls. So not a lot at all. We had some Bengali girls and a couple Latinas, but not not too diverse uh, as far as that goes. It was very, um, very black. So not a lot of interracial mingling within the school environment because there wasn't much racials to mingle. But (laughs) 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 Um, yeah, but, you know, I have a lot of friends who have dated or currently date someone outside Mm. of their race. And I get the question all the time of what I date outside of my race. You guys went to schools in Michigan, yet the difference is so stark. So now I'm curious, 
of the statement where it says America is said to be, quote-unquote, a melting pot, right? Mm. Do you guys think that's proven wrong because of your experiences growing up? You know, Najma, you going to a predominantly black school. Josh, you growing up in a predominantly white community. Do you think that this is this is proven wrong? Let's start with you, Josh. I think it, honestly, it depends on your income and your location. Because there's places that seem genuinely to be like this, like Kumbaya, like there's so many different, like, people there and they seem to be doing fine. But I think that's, that's a very happy narrative to apply to, or, or like a rather hopeful narrative to apply to the whole country. I think people group up either for safety or just for comfort, uh, depending on what their ethnic background is. And you really have to be in a good place to emotionally, if you feel safe, like to step out of your boundaries. So um, maybe like if your parents are immigrants and they want to keep your traditional life, maybe they'll like keep you within your own enclave just because of that. Or maybe if you don't feel safe mixing with other people, then then that'll prevent that. But obviously, I think uh, obviously closer to cities, you're going to get more diversity. And in the countryside, not so much. Yeah. Have you guys ever wondered why? Why it's like that? I think so. If you look at uh, look at our three situations, I think uh, it's at least both Najma and Josh, they're fairly indicative of, of segregation and white flight. I think the area I live in and the amount of diversity that is there is kind of because of post-white flight immigrants came in. But I think, I mean, we can define it as a melting pot, but really it's more of a more of a mosaic, really, I think. So I heard someone use that phrase before. I think this idea of a melting pot in a grand scheme is kind of romanticized, like Josh said. It's, we can have this, like, happy narrative of it, but at the same time, within these communities, like, just it's how, how these communities exist is indicative of historical oppression that has structured a lot of this country. America constantly proves itself wrong. Like, I feel like that phrase should be erased as a melting pot until it proves itself that it actually is a melting pot. Mm. You can't have a melting pot because, you know, when things melt together, you can't start breaking them apart, right? But, you know, what Trump is doing is essentially trying to sift out some of the things that's in a melting pot, treating some of it like the uh, dirt that comes up when you're, like, melting gold, and it doesn't work like that. How has the hypocrisy of the melting pot theory affected them? For Najma, it's trying to live her life in her own way. There are a lot of different things that I'm constantly combating, like not being to this or to that as a Muslim or not being to this or to that as a woman or to this or to that as a black. Just It's just too much to even say, like, this is a dominant narrative of how black Muslim women should be because, honestly, it's not common. It like As many as I know, it still isn't a common thing. Like, the average individual I go up to don't know more than one black Muslim woman who's from America. It's it's difficult to find people who look like me because it's always there's always going to be something different about it, if that makes sense. For Shrey, it's the lack of awareness in his community that don't address important issues. Not to throw shade at my community, but like I, I don't see them as very engaged. I see them, you see this like this uh, like white frat boy kind of mm-hmm. mentality. You kind of see like a I don't know if it's just white. It's a privileged mentality. I think the Josh mentioned like these like um, wealthier white Americans. I think these are like wealthy, privileged Americans who don't have to. They while they are people of color, they don't always have to be addressing of a lot of social issues or be aware. And so um, I find myself to be a little different that way. You do. I think you do come across people who are are socially aware. But generally speaking, on college campuses, I don't. I think the the dominant narrative. Is that you? You do go, you do your school. You do well. You go to med school. Yeah. Does that does that frustrate you that people that look like you don't understand? Yeah, I th- I think it is a little. 
it, it can be a little irritating, but well, I think it's it's a it's a little um, arrogant of me to say that that what I'm doing is is better than someone else, right? I think what I know is um, each person I think is doing their own thing. I think I'm also privileged because I have had the exposure to certain things that they haven't had. I have I had a mother who is very socially aware and grew up partially in this country, um, whereas they haven't. After sharing stories and exchanging experiences, I circled back to my curiosity while creating this podcast. I'm wondering what you guys think being American should be. Should it be dependent on who you are, such as your country of origin, skin color, and religion? Or should it depend on what you believe, such as your respect for American ideals and laws and institutions? I think to an extent it should be more of what you believe, but not as necessarily a respect for laws and institutions per se because of America's history. I think what you believe America can be or could be as potential. I think um, a lot of the institutions that exist in this country aren't actually following American ideals or what people would consider American ideals. I think you can consider yourself American if, if you want something for this country and if you want something out of this country. Yeah, I don't think it's a cut and dry as those two questions. I think it's a mixture of both because you can be an American, but yet you have a different country of origin or ethnic background. I think it's more about, I guess you could say, the commitment to this country. It's not about, you know, going to fight in wars and things like that. It's about the daily lived experience of each citizen, whether or not you were born here. And so... I think that matters more than anything else. And individuals' beliefs, that is what makes the dynamic of this country because essentially because of free speech and certain laws, we are allowed to have a diversity of thought. I would say that it has a multitude of meanings. So it depends on who you are, I suppose. The United States as it stands isn't a place where the first people that settled it were the ones that created the culture. So it doesn't really have a culture that's set in stone. Between forcefully being brought here or coming here on your own volition there's people from literally every spot on earth here so there's a there's a there's a future where i think it'll be more up to you than it is up to society so what did i learn i'm not sure if i figured it out but i realized that america is a work in progress just like most of us that's what it is and they were right you can literally find any community from different parts of the world here I think we're all still adjusting to living with people who don't look like us, unlike other countries who have less of an immigrant population, like my home country. I think that's what makes it special. I guess you can say it's still complicated with America. The music used in this episode were by several artists, Broke for Free and Blank and Kit, you can find them at freemusicarchive.org. For Impact Student Radio, I'm Nina Rao. Welcome back to The Undercurrent. I'm your host, Cole Tunningly, and that was Loose Ends by Nina Rao. You can tell us what you thought of that pilot episode by tweeting at WDBM underscore Loose Ends. And thank you for listening. I'd also like to give a special thank you to our station manager, Audrey Matus, our general manager, Ed Glazer, and our program director, Ella Kovacs. Thank you also to Nina for all her work on Loose Ends. This has been The Undercurrent. I've been your host, Cole Tunningly. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>